Hi folks, it's one of your hosts, Tabby, and welcome back to the Modern Life Podcast. You can find us at modernlifepodcast.com, email us at modernlifepod at gmail.com, and find us on Instagram and Twitter at modernlifepod. This episode is coming out on the first day of fall, and fittingly we're covering The Scapegoat by Daphne du Maurier. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Laura Varnum, for making the time and joining me for this discussion. She's a medievalist professor at Oxford University and an expert on Daphne du Maurier. If you ever get the chance to go to the Foey Festival of Arts and Literature in Cornwall, you can catch her there giving lectures and running reading groups. You can also find Dr. Varnum in the documentary Daphne du Maurier in the footsteps of Rebecca, and on an episode of the podcast, Backlisted. She is the author of The Church as Sacred Space in Middle English Literature and Culture, and is currently working on another book which will focus on Daphne du Maurier. You can find her at our website, drlauravarnum.wordpress.com, on Instagram at drlauravarnum, and on Twitter at lauravarnum. And just a quick warning, we will not just be spoiling the scapegoat, but also briefly talk about Rebecca. So I encourage you to come back to this episode after reading both of these wonderful novels. This is our fourth Du Maurier episode, so check out our back catalog for Rebecca, Jamaica Inn, and also my cousin Rachel. We are starting things off with our modern thoughts and then jumping into the main topic. Thanks for listening. You've had three weeks of masquerade as a French nobleman. And now it is time for you to change back and return to your provincial university. And if I refuse? Two men, physically as alike as twins, but complete strangers. The one dedicated to sin, the other tricked into changing places to find himself the head of a large family he had never seen before. Hello there, I'm here with Dr. Laura Varnum. How are you doing this evening? I'm very well, thank you. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. Um, but we'll just jump right into our modern thoughts. Um, so mine is about modern coverture law. And I know you'll be familiar with coverture law, but just to kind of explain it to the listeners, coverture is the idea that you as a woman do not have enough legal autonomy and need the men in your lives to kind of make the decisions for you. And in the United States, at least, we think of this kind of having gone by the way in the 70s with the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. But I actually found an article from Insider from February this year, which talks about female sterilization in the U.S. And it actually works very similarly still to the laws of coverture. So you, to, in order for a woman to get sterilized, you need in many states, a psychologist's evaluation, write a personal statement, you need consent from your father or husband, there's a waiting period, many insurances also don't cover it, and since it's prohibited in the Catholic Church, and one out of six hospitals in the U.S. are Catholic, it's not available to very many women. And the flip side to this is that men can get sterilized without any issues. So I just thought it was interesting that in the year... 2020, we're still dealing with this autonomy issue. And basically, the patriarchy is alive and well. So that was my modern thought. Wow, yeah, there is there is a long way to go on a lot on a lot of issues. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But yeah, what is yours? Tell us everything you got. 
So my modern thought partly came out of thinking about the situation that we're all in um, with coronavirus and thinking about some of the good that has come out of that. You know, the kindness that I think people have been showing to one another, the ways that communities have really rallied round, new communities have, have sprung up, people have got to know their neighbours better. That's one positive thing we can draw out of all of this. And it made me think about this moment in an essay that Daphne du Maurier um, wrote in the 1960s. Um, it's an essay called This I Believe. Um, you can find it in the Rebecca Notebook and other memories if you're interested in um, following it up. Um, and in that essay, she's talking a bit about what we inherit from our ancestors, what control we have over ourselves as individuals. Um, and she's thinking about the qualities that she has in her, her she's in her 50s at this point mm. um, and the qualities that she um, she had as a child and she has this wonderful line in the essay where she says kindness seems to me the one quality worth praising but today I give it a longer name and call it compassion mm. and this idea of of kindness and compassion really, I think, speaks to me at the moment, speaks to me in 2020. But I also, it, it really stood out to me thinking again about the scapegoat over the last um, week mm -hmm. or so, because I think compassion is something that the scapegoat as, as a novel is about, which might seem surprising in some ways. Many people will know that I have two hats. Um, I teach medieval literature in Oxford as well as working on Daphne du Maurier. In Middle English, the word kind means nature, what is what is natural. So it's actually within oh. our natures to be kind. Oh, I love that. Um, isn't it great? It's <laughs> one of my favourite sort of Middle English facts. And the word compassion, you know, Daphne rephrases it and she says she, she likes to use the word compassion. And that goes back to Latin um, and it means suffering with. So it means a kind of co-suffering or a kind of fellow feeling for others. And it just struck me that that's something that that John, our narrator in The Scapegoat, starts to mm. learn as he goes through the novel. He starts to to learn to engage with others and to feel empathy with them. And so that's, yeah, that's just something that I think, I think is quite interesting when we're thinking about this, this novel. So yes, my modern thought hopefully takes us uh, into our discussion. That's beautiful. No, that's absolutely perfect. Um, so let me just dive into the summary of the book. I love that. The Scapegoat by Daphne du Maurier came out in 1957 and was made into a film two years after its release, and also most recently in 2012. Our protagonist is an Englishman named John who notably speaks perfect French and is doing some vacationing and historical research in France. He runs across Jean de Gay, an impoverished count who looks exactly like him. After a night of drinking and fraternizing, John wakes up alone in a hotel room, robbed of his possessions, with Jean's chauffeur attempting to fetch him home to the estate. Despite John's protestations, the chauffeur isn't the only one mistaking him for the Count. Fooling the whole family, John spends a week living another man's life. The reader slowly discovers through Du Maurier's main character that this dysfunctional family harbors many secrets and resentments towards one another. John attempts to right many of the wrongs, but often his ignorance of the past prevents him from effecting the desired positive change. Jean's wife dies while John is still living his life, which prompts the real husband to return as there is a considerable inheritance to collect. 
In their last meeting, we discover that while John has tried making things better for the family estate and business, Jean has done everything he can to ruin the other man's small life in England. In the end, each of the doppelgangers returned to their previous lives without anyone but Jean's mistress knowing who he really was. So I was curious. In February, you went to a screening of The Scapegoat which is the 1959 version in Hampstead with Demoria's grandson, Rupert Tower. And they talked about this being her most psychological novel. And I think that also ties into what you had said about empathy. Can you speak a little bit towards that or what you learned there? Yeah, absolutely. I think Rupert was absolutely right in, in picking out this psychological angle. And the, the really interesting thing about Rupert's perspective um, is that he is a Jungian analyst. And at the time Daphne was writing the novel, she was really fascinated by the ideas of the psychoanalyst Jung, this mm. notion of everyone having two sides to their personality, that you have this darker side. And Daphne particularly associated that darker side, what she called her number two personality, with, with the writing side of her. Often um, she talks about that as a masculine side, and of course The Scapegoat's one of the five novels with a male narrator. So these ideas of, of everyone having their double within them Though, you know, those ideas are really floating around in her mind in the 50s. And that's kind of one of the places that the novel comes out of. So it's a sort of it's a novel of ideas as much as it is driven by plot. Mm. I, I was reading over your article and your your report on going to the festival. And when Daphne said that he has to learn what to do with love after going going to the monastery, after living this week with them. I have so many questions about the ending because I did not understand her intent there that people can change and have these two sides to them. And it's just one of those book endings that I think a lot about, but that I feel like goes with all Daphne du Maurier books. And I'm just thinking to myself, do you feel like she achieved this? Because I'm really struggling with, we see John really changing and I think if I'd seen that from Jean de Gay, there might have been a point to it. But he has done everything he can to kind of destroy this other man's life. And then he just gets to go back to his family. And I do wonder, does he actually change after this? Is there enough evidence given in the book for us to think that he wouldn't just, you know, plunge the family back into ruin? I think it's a really interesting question. I mean, it is obviously, as you say, typical for Daphne to have these incredibly ambiguous endings. I think with Jean de Guy, you know, we, we don't really know how he is going to behave when he gets back. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that we're probably quite pessimistic about that. But I think in that final chapter where John, our narrator, goes and sees Bella before he leaves, and they have that conversation where of course she, you know she knows he's not the real uh, Jean de Guy and she says well when we see Jean in the future we will look for you in him mm -hmm. and one of the themes of the novel it seems to me is the ways in which the people that surround us expect certain things from us and then we may play up to those expectations so what one of the the interesting things mm. about the doppelganger switch is that they they're looking at him and they're expecting him to be their jam but he 
that he's not, but they can't see that because they're just seeing what mm -hmm. they expect to see. So I, I sort of wonder if the way the family will behave towards him might in some way impact on on his behaviour. I think the key change will be for for John, our narrator. His entire life has been dismantled, so that's <laughs> quite terrifying. Yes. Um, but it gives him, I think it gives him opportunities. And he does say at one point in the novel that he'd never really been concerned about other people before. He'd only really thought about himself. So he really was quite a selfish person. But now he's had these connections with others. Um, hopefully when he goes to the monastery and is able to meditate more and then go back off into the world, perhaps there is some hope there for him but i can completely understand why it's an ending that that works in an intellectual yes. way i did a reading group on this novel at foy festival a few years ago and people said yes i can see that but i still don't feel quite satisfied by the end <laughs> yes even though john is very selfish jean de gay has a selfishness that's so destructive and harmful to others and i just yep. wonder at daphne's choice of making him even more evil towards the end of the book. So then when Bela says, whatever it is, it can't be destroyed, it's taken root and it will go on growing inside him, what that tenderness that you have shown to us, I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that. Like, I don't, I still don't trust this guy. <laughs> I don't know if you will agree with this, but I can see why both movie versions changed this ending to John staying in the family and taking over that life because I don't see anyone pitching this to a movie studio and being like oh and then they each go back to their lives and one of them goes to the monastery you know I don't see a producer yeah. being keen on on an ending like that <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I, t I totally get that I can see that we want uh, Jean de Guy to be to be punished. He's a bad guy. We don't right. like him. You know, we want John to triumph in the end. We want all the good he's created to continue and for him to benefit from it. You know, we think, well, Jean de Guy doesn't appreciate his family, so you know, let him go off and do what he likes. Right. Um, but then we sort of end up with a situation where John then has to get rid of Jean. So you know, he becomes a murderer. In the movies, you mean? They make him yeah, a murderer? Yeah. That is a significant yeah. change. That's true. They always try to make it look like, oh, it's self-defense or it's kind of an accident, though. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps in the BBC, the 2012 one, it's m to some extent more accidental. Perhaps it looks a bit more like self-defense as well, I suppose, perhaps in the, in the Guinness one as well, because Jeanne has come back wanting to get rid of him so it's it's act or or be eliminated himself but I then wonder so if we're thinking about Daphne's ideas psychological ideas for how this novel is working then John has completely given in to his dark side he's become Jan in a way that mm -hmm. that will have negative implications that he'll have to he'll have to come to terms with that eventually I would, I would think. Yeah, and because then you also wonder about, well, he's had to have disposed of the body somewhere, you know, throwing it yeah. in the furnace. And like, it's like, what happens yeah. after that? Yeah, you do kind of think about that. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the furnace scene in the BBC one, that's really terrifying. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, and I can see it gives us that thriller sort of an ending. Yes. It's, it's exciting. It's dramatic. In the Guinness version, it's got this kind of film noir sense to it. You know, suddenly the lamp is knocked over, shots are fired, and you're thinking, oh, what's happened? You're right. Too. <laughs> Which is great. And I could completely see that on an adaptation level but working through the sort of intellectual process that I think Daphne was really going through it just doesn't Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit to what she wanted yeah I can see that now talking through it with you is has really helped me because it's just one of those endings where I'm like what I don't know what to think this is actually from an article of yours actually um, you said in the 1950s, Daphne had also begun to research her French ancestors who were glass blowers, and that location of the glass factory in the book it is just one of the most striking book locations that I can think of. Like I can, and it's the way she's such an atmospheric writer. But I hear the glass bits like crunching under soles. I see the different colors like in my brain, and the idea of glass also ties into almost like this theme of reflection and transparency that's going on with John living in another person's life. And I always think it's such a shame that the films can't put that in there. But understandably, I also realize it's a budget issue and a safety issue and you can't just have glass shards lying everywhere. Yeah. But it's just so, yeah, it's like too bad that it never makes it into any of the films. Definitely. It's like, yeah, I think it's wonderful. And it is that point you just made about about things being reflective, see through, incredibly fragile and dangerous, oh. obviously, with with the glass shards and that that extraordinary scene where we find in the mm. book, Mary Noel, the little girl is down the well with all these pieces of glass and yes. she's been holding some of them in her hands you know almost like stigmata she's the she's the super religious little girl and it, it does all kinds of things in the book that, that as you know as you say partly come from um at the beginning of the, the 50s Daphne's doing more research into her French ancestors um you know she finds out they were glass blowers and and again this is a novel that's about the sort of English and French sides of Daphne's personality mm, and how how they can be reconciled if they can be. So obviously the BBC adaptation makes quite a big choice in resetting it in England rather than rather than sticking with the French setting. Did you like that framing device of the coronation? I think it was really interesting rewatching it. I first watched it when it came out in 2012 and my memory of it was that I really didn't like it mm-hmm. because I thought the French the Frenchness was so key. But rewatching it this week, I did actually quite like it. The there's a bit where Johnny Spence, so the the French uh, one who is French in the right. novel, he talks about this moment just before the Queen's coronation being a moment of sort of potential anarchy because technically there's nobody on the throne. So this is a mm. a moment when things are quite open in a in a sort of carnivalesque kind of way it made me think you know there is a there's a kind of usurpation plot here because he makes the point that you know mm. elizabeth um, the second should shouldn't shouldn't mm. have been queen if it hadn't have been for the application and so on so that throws an interesting light on john because he he takes his place at the head of a family that wasn't wasn't his mm. what what did you think about it I I liked it. Um, I didn't mind them 
having it set entirely in England, I think it's a little bit easier to do just filming wise than bringing another nation in there. But what you had said about Daphne du Maurier and her French side and her English side, she does something in the book that I think very few people are able to truly accomplish. And that is setting something in a different language, but it's written in English. The book is written in English, but it constantly reminds you that these people are French and one of the instances I can think of is when she does throw in French words like tenderness, she always writes as tendresse. And then when yeah. the when the mother says, I'm suffering, she says, je souffre. And then she has this whole little bit about how you can only express that in French. And John's relationship to the French language and why he loves it so much and studies it so much is brilliantly put into the novel and you never you never finish it and you're like oh I forgot that this was taking place in France or anything like that she's so in command of her settings at all times but I don't know if that would be easy to put into a film but I loved it in the book yeah I, th I think you're absolutely right about that it's it's there in a in a way that we feel immersed in it but we don't feel alienated from it there's enough mm. French for us to get that that setting linguistically and in her her brilliant descriptions of the chateau and the, the glass factory yeah and it's you know it is such an important part of her identity that's one of the great things about the most recent biography of Daphne Mandalay Forever by Tatiana Derone who is a Franco-British novelist living in uh, living in Paris and she really evokes all of the, the kind of Frenchness of Daphne's life and how important it is and how important Paris was when she was when she was younger and so I do think it's a shame that the BBC hmm. doesn't do that but I can also see why. That's fascinating I did not know that much about her French background until I started reading your articles on it. Are there other books of hers that you would recommend that are also a little bit French, I guess? Yeah, so um, after The Scapegoat, in 1963, she writes The Glassblowers, the Glassblowers um, yeah. which is all about the French ancestors during the French Revolution. So that's definitely one to, to look at. Earlier on in the 30s, in 1937, I think I'm right in saying, um, she writes The Du Maurier's which starts with her great-great-grandmother, Mary-Anne Clark, who's English and has, has caused a big scandal by having an affair um, with the Duke of York and getting huh. into all of this trouble selling military commissions. Um, and eventually she goes off to Paris and her daughter, um, Ellen, meets Louis Maturin. They get married um, and then that starts the kind of French sort of side of the the Du Maurier family. So that novel, The Du Maurier's from 1937, it explores that kind of marrying up of the English and the French hmm. side. So it's something that's, yeah, well worth pursuing when you're thinking about Du Maurier. Oh, fascinating. This is this is only my fourth one, and I've barely scratched the surface with her. <laughs> so I can't wait to dive into more of that. Um, I actually had a question about Marie Noel, since you had brought her up. I find yeah. her such a strange child, and maybe because this is yeah. such a common trope nowadays in movies of having the wise child, you know, the, the six-year-old, but they speak like they're 80 years old. Um, yeah. And I kind of felt that way about Marie-Noël, and it made her less real to me. And I couldn't decide if that was a choice or if she just didn't write 
the child characters as well as the adult ones. But you'll have to educate me on that. Oh, that is such an interesting thought. I suppose she partly has that plot function along with the dog, that the dog and the child Mm -hmm. and Bella, who, you know, she's the Hungarian mistress who's sort of slightly outside of the family. They're the ones who don't who don't believe in the, the switch that's taken place. So she has that kind of wisdom about her. There is, some, there is something really odd about Marie Noel, the intense religiosity. I mean, I think she has quite a charming relationship with her father mm-hmm. in some ways, but she's also possessive of him. Mm-hmm. I suppose I think this might be... I think it's, I mean, it's partly coming from Daphne's relationship with her own father. She had a very close relationship with, uh. with Gerald, who was an actor, of course, always playing somebody else. Um, he was always, you know, always in oh, a, interesting. A kind of double, uh. double role. Um, and, of course, most famously played both Captain Hook and Mr. Darling in the stage play of Peter Pan. So that's you know, a real kind of classic double role. And one of the reasons, this is a slight tangent, but one of the reasons why Daphne was so keen for Alec Guinness to play uh, mm-hmm. John in the film is because Alec Guinness really does look quite like Gerald de Maurier. So there's a link there in in Daphne's mind. Hmm. I suppose I also think there's something going on with both the relationship between father and child and then the really intense influence that Blanche has over Marie Noel in kind of shaping this intense religious feeling. Yes. So I think she's, she's doing something with thinking about how a child might feel growing up in that kind of environment. Mm. Trying to think about other children in Du Maurier novels. Um, there are not that many, are there? There's a whole group of sort of lost boys in Rural Britannia, which is her last mm. book, where mad who's this 80 year old grandmother figure she she's taken in all of these yeah i mean all of these boys who are lost in one way or another um and so they're a sort of rewriting of the lost boys from from peter pan i suppose children are often strange strange creatures in in Hmm. demorier there is this sense of either growing up too soon or not wanting to grow up Hmm. which is very peter pan a very Peter Pan idea. Interesting. Um, yeah, you also had brought up Blanche. I think she is my favorite character in the book um, because I oh, just oh, interesting. Yeah, I just see her being trapped in this crumbling estate. She's unmarried. She has this horrid family. I understand why she becomes this religious fanatic to maybe deal with all this trauma. And it's also so important to note that the generations of survivors of the war and of the Holocaust and that entire time, they did not have a culture of talking about anything or, you know, seeking help, going to a therapist. And we now have psychological evidence that that has really hurt those types of people and that has had lasting effects not talking about any of this. And that's just always what I think about with Blanche and really the whole family because they don't talk about things. She doesn't talk to her brother. You know, she's, I just think of her past being so sad and religion being this really unhealthy band-aid almost that she puts over it. You know, she doesn't use religion in a very healthy way. And I just find her absolutely fascinating. That's so interesting. I can completely see that because she's so, you really, you get such a lot of tension from that relationship. This, yeah, how, you know, powerful 
woman there who's repressing everything and for some reason mm. that John just doesn't quite understand yet she hates him and she doesn't want to speak to him and he keeps making all of these incredibly awkward mistakes around her yeah. giving her the gift that was meant for Bella that whole storyline going back to the war is a really important part of the kind of secrets that are at the heart of the novel yes I agree also at the end when his wife dies and they need a blood transfusion. And he goes, no, 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 that's not my blood type. Because he knows he's not oh. the real Jean de Gay. And right away she assumes, oh, you just want her to die. That's why you don't want to give the blood transfusion. Like this family is so horrible to each other. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah, they are. It's quite extraordinary the way that Du Maurier managed to, manages to keep peeling back these layers. And just when you think, oh, okay, yeah. think he's kind of got a handle on this relationship. Then he makes another faux pas and there's something else behind it that he's yes. gradually learning. It's great. And what did you think about Blanche in the newest movie? I thought sometimes she was a little too shrill, but then I also really liked the change of her. Um, it's implied that she's gay and it's a little bit of, I guess, a lighter twist on this really dark history that they went through in World War II because her her lover kind of killed herself because John Spence had an affair with her. They have that line in there too about like, oh, she had nobody to turn to. She had nobody to speak to. I thought it was an interesting change, but it definitely removes some of that quiet strength that you had just spoken about to the character. Yeah, I think you're right. I Yeah, I, I quite liked it. I liked the idea that, I suppose it makes the, jealousy work in a different way because in the BBC one you know she's I think she says something like you just wanted her because I wanted her you always mm -hmm. want something you can't have so mm -hmm. you just took her from me whereas I think Blanche in the book says that Jean de Guy wanted Maurice Duval removed because he was jealous of how popular he was yes um, yeah with the men at the at the glass factory. So it's a different spin on that, on that idea of jealousy. I think in the BBC one, I was struck by how cruel Johnny Spence was to the to the various women, to Francis the wife in particular, but also to Bella. He obviously he assaults her. Uh, we see her, you know, yes, with a, a, you're right. And you just think, wow, this, you know, this man is is misogynistic on a on a you know appalling level. It, um, it is strange that scene where he comes back for the inheritance, and he makes his wife take some kind of medication to kill herself. I I just thought it weakened her so much. Like, why would she listen to him? Why would she do this? Her death is a little bit more mysterious in the book. And then also when she's going to wake up, she's going to remember this, isn't she? <laughs> like, how are they going to yeah. fix that relationship? <laughs> like, what is he going to say? I just thought that was a, a, a weird change to have her consciously making that decision with him right there to kill herself. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it, it makes Johnny Spence a really wicked yeah. character. Whereas in the novel, you know, we don't really know what's happened with Francoise. She she seems to have leant out of the window, maybe to retrieve the locket. At least that's what Marie What, what do you think? What um, do you think happened? I I don't know. I Sometimes I read it and I think, well... 
Francoise was so downtrodden by this point. She felt that everybody just wanted her to die from, you know, from her mother-in-law to, to René to everybody, and that she does commit suicide. Obviously, that has implications because she's pregnant. And I, I, so then I think, well, you know, would she have acted in that way? And then I think it's interesting that the issue of suicide is cleared up by the little girl who goes out onto the windowsill, co- mm. comes back in with the locket and the duster and says, oh, look, she either leant out too far and she fell or she was trying to get the locket. She didn't want to, it to have dropped. And that's incredibly convenient for John slash Jeanne. <laughs> and the mm. little girl is willing to do all kinds of strange oh, things. Oh, you're to- right support her father so when I re- when I reread it this week I thought has she made that up has she right. made up that scenario oh I hadn't even um, thought about that <laughs> I, actually I just suddenly became really suspicious because they yeah. I think they go upstairs John is with the, the policeman who's come and they go into Francois's bedroom and at just that moment Marie Noel is, is leaning out and then suddenly oh look look what I found I don't know, I don't think Daphne makes it clear it's her classic ambiguity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so another thing I found really interesting is with Daphne du Maurier films, I think it's really hard not to do a voiceover. I, I hate voiceovers. And I thought Matthew Reese did such a great job of playing so many emotions on his face because so much goes on internally in yeah. what he's going through. And I thought it was all communicated perfectly. And in the Alec Guinness version, which does have a voiceover, I found out that so many scenes were deleted from that film, which caused him to record that voiceover. And he is one of my favorite actors. He's immensely talented. So I definitely think there would have been a version possible for him to, again, play all that out on his face. And I, I there's just so many things that kind of went wrong with that film. And I feel like it could have been much better. Absolutely agree. It was... Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit of a mess on on a lot of different levels, and Daphne was she was so disappointed yeah. in it. She had you know had such high hopes for it with Alec Guinness. Yes, but yeah, they cut a lot, and then that meant they had to do a voiceover. They cut a lot of Betty Davis's scenes, and she was not happy about that. Well, she wasn't <laughs> um, good in it. She's so she is so <laughs> melodramatic in this film. It's a bad performance. Uh, Alec Guinness didn't get along with her, neither did the director who was suffering from health issues during this filming. I mean, she really did not portray the strength and hold this matriarch has over the family well. Yeah, she really didn't. (laughs) She's sort of dwarfed by all the kind of soft furnishings and the flowers, and it's all very claustrophobic and and, and sort of there's a weirdly sexualized vibe with her and her and and Alec Guinness she's possessive in this creepy way Hmm. whereas in the in the BBC one with I think Eileen Atkins has got some of the power that we Mm -hmm. see of the mother in the book but no Betty Davis was really not happy and she she sort of barely spoke of the film again It, it isn't really discussed in any biographies autobiographies of her it's it's one that gets a bit brushed under the carpet (laughs) (laughs) understandably so yes I think also something that really annoyed me in this film was this weird like orchestral upbeat music and there was a score written for it that I, I am assuming it must be lost the music that we have now is not the original music for the film and especially with a really atmospheric Daphne du Maurier book 
like the score for the Alan Guinness version was just such a failure. It's like, oh, this is not Daphne. <laughs> this is not yeah. the mood we're going for here. Yeah, particularly if you compare it to, you know, something like the music for the Hitchcock Rebecca. Oh I my gosh, yes. Yeah. Franz Waxman, am I remembering that rightly? But it's just it's just extraordinary. And you yes. hear a bar of that music and you're there at Mandalay. <laughs> That's true, yes. And the 2012 actually had this, really only had one song, but it was this wonderful building theme that started out very slowly and then just got more intense. And I thought, they actually did a really good job with the music in the newer one. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right there. And then yeah. I also I had already asked you questions about this, but I also thought it was interesting viewing the Alec Guinness version how the Hayes Code had kind of fallen by the wayside. And I mean, this has been so detrimental to Rebecca to Jamaica Inn where restrictions of the time did not allow you to do anything but there were so many things in this Alec Guinness movie where I was like oh how did they how did they get that in there they're talking about like miscarriage and mistresses and I was like okay like we are, we're getting more hip now in the 50s I think there's been quite a lot of challenges to the Hayes Code in the early 50s so I think in some ways this adaptation benefits from that slightly less restrictive environment whereas obviously with with Hitchcock's Rebecca the the key change is that you're you know you're not allowed uh the yes. hero of the film to get away with murder so then Rebecca's murder becomes an accident I think in some ways plays interestingly as a viewer because when you you'll remember that that scene has Laurence Olivier in the boathouse narrating what had happened telling the new Mrs de Winter well you know she came towards me and this happened and that happened most viewers would probably certainly now will know that that's not true um that's not what happens in the book so it makes us view maxim de winter very suspiciously yes, at when... that moment <laughs> we know what you really did going back to the character of the mom there's some scenes in the newer version that i find so so lovely and i think one of them is the shooting feast that they have in the barn where paul gives that speech to you know, his mom and they have this toast and she has that moment of like, oh, maybe my younger son isn't an idiot after all. And then you kind of see <laughs> Paul and Renee yeah. holding hands. And I'm like, I, I just love those sweet little moments that they put into the new film. But maybe maybe it's too sugary for you. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think, it, I think it's great because it, it does show that sort of John Sanding has come into this place where you know, everything can be shook up a bit. You know, they're not all stuck in this rut. And because he comes in and changes things, all of a sudden we see, well, maybe his brother isn't um, mm -hmm. a complete loser. Maybe maybe the marriage can take off again and, and Johnny Spencer's own, own marriage can, um, can start to flourish. The mother doesn't have to be stuck upstairs. So all of mm -hmm. these things that seem fossilized and, and in a state of decay start to mm. grow a little bit oh um, that's perfect which I do think yeah I think I think that kind of speaks to some of the the, the things that that Daphne's interested in what mm. can flourish if things change yes and later on when they have the discussion in the hospital where John says to Renee she says oh you and your husband looked so strong together at the luncheon and you're just what he needs I like start crying a little bit I'm like oh that's so sweet like this family can be saved um yeah. but I actually like what you said about things crumbling and things being fossilized because I love the 
I love the estate as kind of a symbol of that. And I think a really good example of this is, I mean, it's a little bit earlier, but Downton Abbey, we have this like new generation, the 1900s, and like you cannot sustain these estates anymore. There's a scene in the 2012 one where he's like, I'm going to save the business. I'm going to sell one of the paintings. And the mom's like, go ahead. It's a fake. Like, this is all, this is all a facade. And I don't know why, but in the book, the castle or the estate having this moat around it, I don't know why it's important to me, but it's almost like it separates it from the rest of the community. And they're living in this crumbling fantasy land where they're stuck in the past and they can't get out of these old conceptions they have of each other yeah i think you're you're absolutely right i think it kind of sets them apart from the workers and there's that whole point about jean de guy he doesn't care about the workers at the glass factory he's not at all yes He, he doesn't care about them you know he's the aristocratic count and you know he's just interested in in himself and i think it also it also speaks to du maurier's own investigations of her family backgrounds because the du maurier name was added by one of the french ancestors to make them sound like they were aristocratic and then she was thinking what you know how would my father gerald how would grandfather george have what would they have thought about the fact that the you know these du mauriers are not you know these displaced french aristocrats they were glass blowers so i think there's something going on there with with thinking through those family origins Hmm. and and the chateau as you say is this perfect sort of embodiment of the secrets of the past it's that it's giving us all those Mm. gothic yes that's true you know know, the mother's the mad woman in the attic there's all these oh why didn't i think about that yeah you're right (laughs) i just i just sort of thought about that now because when you think i was really struck in the 2012 version when when John first goes into the house and he's walking around and he's he's trying out, you know, he's going in different rooms and thinking, well, what's in here? Who's in here? Where am I supposed to mm-hmm. go? And you get that same vibe with Mrs. De Winter and Rebecca when she arrives at Mandalay. Mm. She doesn't know where anything is. She doesn't know where the drawing room is. And then she suddenly discovers the West Wing, which is, you know, full of Rebecca's memory, mm. quite literally, all the materials, all the all of her clothes. So I think the chateau is, is operating in similar kinds of ways. Mm, interesting, um, yeah. You don't know what's in the next room. <laughs> yes, I love him sneaking around. I I thought Matthew Rees played that so well when he comes into the breakfast room and he just stops yeah. and he doesn't know where to sit and he pulls out the wrong chair and everyone's like, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> and also him running up to Marie Noel's room when she threatens to throw herself out the window and he's like, which room is it? Like, I just yeah. thought that was perfect. <laughs> well, I think, I think what was so clever about that early bit in the, in the BBC one is it's played almost as fast because you think, well, yeah, this is ridiculous. What is he doing here? He's, you know, he keeps making these wrong moves. It's a brilliant bit when uh, with Sheridan Smith, who's playing his sister-in-law, the one he's having the affair with, and and he he sort of tries to have an interaction with her, and she just slaps his face and says, "Don't touch me," and sort of yeah. rushes <laughs> off. <laughs> this is this is ridiculous. It is fast, but then it suddenly becomes suspense and and so that shift works really well I think because you think why doesn't he just leave this is madness yes yes I actually love that you mentioned suspense because her writing here 
where it's almost like a detective story. And, you know, you have that yeah. opening of the presence and you're like, what's in the presence? And just reading this yeah. book for the first time, I was doing the audiobook and I would always be so mad when I would get to work because I'm like, I need, no, I need to know what happens. <laughs> like she does that so well. And it's still at this really slow pace, but I'm not using slow in a bad way here. She just really takes her time and she has it plotted yeah. out and she knows what she's doing. It's just when you read one of her books, you're like, oh, I'm in good hands, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And she, I think one of the reasons why this works so well is it, you know, the action takes place over a week. It's quite a short amount of time, mm -hmm. but she's going through every day, almost meal by meal, moment by moment, as these different things are happening and gradually revealing who everyone is. And I think the first couple of chapters at the Chateau, when there's all these women and you're, and we as a reader start to think, well, okay, one's the wife, one might be the mistress. <laughs> How many women has he got on the go here? Right. Who, who are they all? And it's just it's just brilliant as you see him fumbling to figure out how he's supposed to behave. Yes, and you sent this back in 2010. You said this in an article that it's like a detective story and that just hits the nail on the head. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen any Goodreads reviews of this book, but so many of them are like, two stars, it's not realistic that two people would look exactly the same. And I'm like, oh, you missed the point. That's not the point. Yeah. Like, Daphne knows it's not realistic. Yeah, she was concerned about that. She, there's a, um, she wrote a letter to her publisher, Victor Glantz, and said, you know, I've got to, I've got to get this right at the beginning. People have got to buy it as an idea. And I think that's why it's really good in the book that before he's met Jean de Guy, he is mistaken for him by somebody in the town. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, someone says, oh, you know, starts talking to him and he's kind of, oh, that's weird. You've mistaken me for somebody else and walks off. So we already know it's plausible that he looks like somebody else. Mm. Obviously, we know he's he's a perfect French speaker. But I think, you know, that's so isn't the point um yes and have been, <laughs> there are plenty of doppelganger novels from prisoner of zender to the prince and the pauper yes, to, yes. you know there's all kinds of of ones where those switches happen but the interesting thing is is it going to work is he going to be found out and how is he going to behave playing another man's part you had said this as well it doesn't it doesn't even matter if he doesn't behave correctly because it's about everybody else's expectations of him and they don't yeah. they don't see him for who he is anyways yeah that's absolutely right and there's a there's a wonderful bit again i think fairly early on when john suddenly realizes well they the thing he was worried about they'll know it's it's a different person they are not seeing that at all mm -hmm. so suddenly he has this almost exhilarating feeling of freedom and he thinks well I can do anything I like because I'm not me I'm him mm -hmm. I can I can do anything and that that's both liberating and a bit frightening mm -hmm. I think he says something like I, I could really mess with their lives but thankfully he he goes down the more positive route of mm -hmm. trying to help them yeah and I also think that out of the four books I've read this is the one that has the most amount of quotes that I have written down in a book. I, I just love wow. her writing here. There's one part, and this is right after the wife, Francoise, dies. And I think it's one of the 
one of the servants or one of the other characters says death is beautiful madame jean might be an angel in the sky when they look upon her dead body and then john says i did not agree death was an executioner lopping a flower before it bloomed the sky had glories enough but not the soil i just, just thought that was such a beautiful line wow. <laughs> yeah yeah she, she's brilliant there are some there are some fantastic passages in here there are some some great discussions of the, of the way the way she does the psychology and she talks about at one point Jeanne's inner substance was part of my nature part of my secret self hmm. um, I really like that description hmm. um, and it also ties into her what she set out to do this idea hmm. that you had mentioned of the two selves and one being the secret one and we have to find balance somehow between the two yeah I mean, she she says very famously in a in a letter that's quoted in Margaret Forster's biography that we are all doubles. We all have our dark side, and so many of her stories are about how you reconcile yourself with that dark side of your personality. Um, how do you deal with those those inner demons? And you know, a lot of the time she uses her writing to try to to both engage with those mm -hmm. um, and to to deal with them to kind of package them up to, to try to to get over them yes yes i totally agree um and i know i've said the word atmospheric now 20 times but just <laughs> in the way that she's able to create a mood and she does this a lot through using nature as well and i love the depictions of autumn in this novel this is like the perfect fall book um, and this is yep. about the chestnuts that are falling. I'm just going to read it really quickly. This this whole quote is probably my favorite Daphne du Maurier quote. So it says, Once again, the little plopping thud that had disturbed me in the dressing room sounded close by, and I saw that it was the chestnuts falling from the trees onto the gravel path beyond the moat. No rising mist, no falling leaf, no pattering rain could have marked with such finality the end of summer. There was the whole of autumn in the sound. I want to get that whole thing tattooed on my wow. body. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's perfect, isn't it? Perfect for this time of year. Yes. Wow. So, yeah, she's, she's, she is so evocative. You're just there in evocative. those places yes. with her. Um, it's such a skill. Yes. Did you have any last notes about this? Anything else that we haven't brought up yet? Gosh, um, I think we've ranged pretty widely over the uh, over the things that I was thinking about. You know, I do think I think both adaptations are well worth watching if um, you know if listeners can get hold of them. The BBC one is is fairly easy to get on on DVD. The Alec Guinness one slightly less easy to to get a hold of, but definitely definitely worth watching. It's something that I think with Du Maurier, it's so hard to translate those first person narratives yes into film so that translation from one medium into the other and into another is is really challenging but you know as i think we've shown in our discussion by doing that by adapting her books you always go back to the book with with a different thought i think and you, you go well okay well you know why why didn't daphne do it this way why did she do it the way she did it one other actually one thing that just occurred to me with the bbc one i don't if you remember the um when the titles come up, the E of the and then the uh -huh. scape of scapegoat pops out first. Uh -huh. So you get escape. Yes. 
and then the other letters come out. And I thought that was really clever of the BBC one because there is this notion of escape, of escaping into somebody else's life. And that's, I mean, that's very relatable. Who doesn't get sick of their lives sometimes? Definitely, <laughs> definitely. There's a line where um, Mary Noel says to John in the novel, do you think it would be easier to be someone else? And I think we often think, gosh, I wish I was this person or mm. oh, it would be so much easier if I wasn't me. And then John acts that out for us and we, we, we see, well, well, no, it isn't always easy to be somebody else to take on their problems. I totally agree. Yeah, no, this was absolutely perfect. Thank you again for coming on and discussing this novel with me. It's just, I think with Daphne, you, when you talk to somebody else about it, it helps you organize your thoughts on it. It's not, you can't just read one of her books and like, forget about it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That's why one of, you know, one of my favorite sort of things to do with Daphne is running the reading groups at the Du Maurier Festival in, in Cornwall. And it's just amazing to get a whole bunch of readers in a room, huh. particularly, you know, with, with something as ambiguous as my cousin Rachel, for example, and just to hear where people are coming from and what they can see. And you can have such, a good discussion and I always I mean I've come out of this discussion with you think, thinking all kinds of extra <laughs> thoughts that I hadn't had before so it's been brilliant um, I'm really grateful to you for, for having me on oh no thank you and where can people find you online where can they follow you so you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Laura Varnum. Um, and in fact, in September with Contrary Reader, with Kelly, um, we're running a, a reading group discussion of Rebecca. So if you want to start reading Rebecca um, over the coming month, that would be a great idea. Um, I'm on Twitter at Laura Varnum. Um, I've also got a personal website, which is lauravarnum.wordpress.com. Um, but yeah, you can, you can find me all over the internet uh, chatting about Daphne. Perfect. Beautiful. Thank you again. Thank you very much. It is extraordinary us meeting like this, isn't it? Yes, I suppose it is. I mean, don't you think there's something special about now? This moment between the death of one monarch and the coronation of the next. What do you mean? Well, anything's possible. The throne's empty. No one's in charge. To anarchy. To anarchy.